0: Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for gifted worship leaders across the country that have renewed so much music and written songs for your people to sing. Ordinary people, Lord, like us, that you take great pleasure in because by your grace, you've placed us in your son, Jesus Christ. Help me now, Lord, to speak well of him. there's a single person here online or in person who doesn't know you, Jesus, I pray that today they would, that they would be humble in your presence and they would turn away from their sin and turn themselves over to you. Only you can save them. You're our only hope in this life and you will be our only hope in the moment of our death. Thank you for that good news that we can trust you in Christ's name, I pray. Amen. We're in the book of Acts today, if you'll open your Bibles, please, in the book of Acts in the first chapter. This is going to be a very quick tour through the entire book of Acts, believe it or not. It's true, the whole book in one sermon. Are you nervous? Okay, you're not nervous, I'm pleased. Many people think that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Acts. He didn't. He is one of its protagonists. He is its chief protagonist from about the ninth chapter forward, but he didn't write it. Luke did. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Luke alone wrote a two-volume work. He gave us the gospel of Jesus, which is a portrait of the life of Christ that Luke, not as an eyewitness, but a person who investigated carefully from eyewitnesses who Jesus was and what Jesus did, he set it out in an orderly fashion. Luke was a medical doctor by training. Luke, we're told in the book of Acts, would be a companion of Paul on his missionary journeys and with the care with the care of a historian and a journalist as someone who did not witness the events of the life of Christ, he interviews and actually spends a great deal of time with Paul who met Jesus after Jesus' resurrection and gives an orderly account that continues to amaze historians to the present day when... Secular history finally catches up to what God has always known is true. So you have really Luke, Acts. That's how Bible students like to refer to it. It's a two-volume work. And at the end of the Gospels, if you read all of the Gospels, two or three chapters before their conclusion, you would think that not only has Jesus been killed, but his message, his cause has been thwarted and humiliated. Jesus, shockingly, has decided to spend most of His ministry giving Himself daily to a group of ragtag misfits known to the world as the apostles. That's a biblical word that means those who were sent. And it's mostly the most named profession, as I said earlier, fishermen. These are ordinary people. There's a political activist among them and there was someone who had basically sold his integrity and his conscience to the Roman Empire to collect taxes for the Romans. Must have made for some interesting staff meetings when the revolutionary who wants to kill Romans sits across from the tax collector who gathered up money for the empire. From this unlikely bunch, this bunch, they're going to carry the message? Doesn't look like it. Two or three chapters before the Gospels conclude. It looks like it's all over. Peter, the most, the one filled with the most bravado, who had bravely told the Lord, even if the rest of these guys forsake you, I'm gonna stand with you. He not only denied knowing Jesus, he took oaths. He apparently embarrassed himself and would have been, his mother would have been embarrassed to be there using the to hear the words he used to to deny knowing Jesus at all. And they go to hide. But then, just as promised, Jesus actually rose from the dead. And we're told that Jesus spends 40 days with his closest disciples. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, on one occasion Jesus met with over 500 people at once. These weren't mystical visions. These weren't random momentary apparitions. No, if you read the very end of the Gospels, Jesus walked with them, sat down at the table with them, enjoyed meals with them. He even cooked breakfast for the disciples on one occasion, passed out the fish. And once they were utterly convinced of the reality of His resurrection and Once they did what He asked and waited in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit had come to empower them, then everything changed. And they're going to remain human, and they're going to remain frail, and as you read the book of Acts and. Some parts of the epistles you'll see, and I'm going to show you the frailties and the divisions and five steps forward and one step back, but they are going to be completely transformed because they took the last commandment Jesus gave them to heart. You see, in all four Gospels and in the book of Acts, Jesus gives the Great Commission, His last words, His last instructions became their first priority. I want to show you how this unfolded in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, please, if you'll look in your Bibles. And then we'll primarily, because we're going so quickly, I've I've written some scriptures down for you in the bulletin as well. Those of you at home, please open your Bibles. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke writes in the first book, O Theophilus, because he seems to be writing to an ordinary Greek man to tell him all of these things about Jesus. "'In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach.'" until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And here is his great commission in the book of Acts. This is in your bulletin so that we can all read it together. Here is Jesus' instructions to the disciples then and now. Read this with me, Acts 1 verse 8. Here's what Jesus told them and what Jesus tells us. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 1030 crowd's an enthusiastic crowd. I love it. Let's read that again. Here's Jesus' commission to us. But you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Sometimes it's easy to read the Bible and miss the gist of what it's telling us. What are the disciples to do? What is their job now? What is their commission? They are to do what? They are to be witnesses. And this witness is going to spread from the capital city into the province of Judea into what they would consider enemy territory where the Samaritans who are half Jew and half Gentile live and go beyond that all the way to the end of the world. But what is going to carry the message there is these followers of Jesus are going to be His witnesses. And as you're going to see across the rest in the New Testament, that same commission was not restricted to them. It carried forward to every disciple. Every disciple of Jesus is to give witness to Jesus. And witness here, you will be my witness, isn't really a technical term. We've made it into a church term. We've made it into a bit of Christianese where we say, well, I witnessed to him. And if you've been in church for a while, you know what that means. It means that they shared the gospel. They shared the good news of Jesus. They shared the person of Jesus with someone that they didn't think knew about him in the first place. But let's be really clear and let's be really practical about what a witness is. What does a witness do? I know you're accustomed to this being a monologue, but this is me inviting you to talk back, okay? You in your living room, you'll just have to tell your, uh, your, your family. What does a witness do? A witness tells what he's seen. That's it. Does a witness make stuff up? No, that's, that's perjury. That's false witness. Forbidden in the Bible and forbidden in our courts. A witness is not, he's not a participant. He's not the point of the action. He may not uh, have been involved in what happened. A witness is simply someone who tells what they saw and heard. Maybe you've had, as I've had, the opportunity to be a witness in some kind of proceeding. I've done so in traffic court a couple times in my own defense, okay? And I've never been found a credible witness in traffic court either judge said, even though I was telling the truth, he said, I don't buy it, pay up. And then that was that. It was over. That's all we are. We're witnesses. At its core, the faith of Christ is simple. God sent His Son from heaven to live righteously in the place of sinful people who did not believe in Him, who were not looking for Him, who had not asked for help. But God in His great love, knowing our need before we did, sent His Son to live righteously in our place as our substitute. And He died on the cross, not as a great moral example, but as a substitute, the righteous for sinful people. And God in His mercy and grace opens the eyes of people who weren't looking for God in the first place, makes us humble ourselves by His grace to believe what we once ignored, turn away from our sin and our efforts to save ourselves, which is all religion, and entrust ourselves to Jesus. Throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. And the moment you do that, He saves you. Church membership doesn't save you, though church membership matters. Reading the Scriptures does not save you, though reading the Scriptures matters. The person, the actual person, person of Jesus, the Son of God, saves people. And at that moment, those who are saved are commissioned to tell all the others. That's what your life is. That's why you're still here. Jesus saved you and made you a participant in His story of salvation so that you could tell others what He has done for you. If nothing else, if you can't answer theological questions... If you cannot explain difficult questions about life and reality that still perplex people, you can at the very least be a witness to Jesus and tell them what Jesus did for you. You can tell them what kind of person you were before Jesus met you. You can tell them what you were thinking, feeling, and doing before Christ came into your life. You can tell the story of how someone else told you about Christ, And how you didn't believe it at first, but perhaps you read the Bible, or perhaps you went to church, or you kept meeting with that friend, and slowly over time, this Savior you actually could not see convinced you of his absolute reality. You stopped believing in yourself. You started trusting him, and he saved you, and that's why you're telling this other person. By the way, almost without exception, this is how almost everybody in human history becomes a Christian, becomes a disciple of Jesus. I'll prove it if you don't mind being part of a quick little survey. How many of you came to faith in Christ? You put your faith in Jesus. You became a Christian because someone else, a friend, a family member, a pastor, someone else in your life face-to-face shared the gospel with you. Would you raise your hand if that's your situation? Would you look around real quick? Like three people kept their hands down. Maybe they weren't paying attention, I'm not sure. Or maybe there were one of those two or three percent who heard something on the radio and there was no one with them, but that's rare. Even those who come to faith in Christ in big mass events like the Billy Graham Crusade or Harvest with Greg Laurie in our own time— Almost all of the people who finally put their faith in Jesus at events like that, guess what? They went to the stadium with someone else because somebody else invited them. It's extremely rare. I've been a pastor for 30 years. It is extremely rare for someone to come to church utterly uninvited without knowing anybody in that congregation. Maybe, I'd have to think carefully, maybe two or three times in those 30 years that I'm third generation in ministry, so I've heard just about all the stories that pastors and missionaries can possibly tell. Every once in a great while, someone will come in off the street saying, this is a church, I'm desperate to know about God, please somebody tell me. That happens, we heard that from uh, missionary Tim Long uh, last week. That happens, but it's rare. Why is that? Because the plan is right here in front of you. The plan is that Jesus saves people, and the people He just saved tell all the others. In other words, this jet survey of the book of Acts, I'm preaching in a very unusual way for me. Normally, I'd move through a specific little section of Scripture, this time in its entire book. Here's the first lesson from the book of Acts. Telling people about Jesus is obedience to Jesus. That's it. That's it. We don't tell people about Christ out of political motivation or personal creed or because it's our cause. In fact, we're not so committed to causes and creeds. We are committed to Christ. And with Christ comes a cause and with Christ comes a creed. But He's the point and we tell others about Him in obedience to Him. And in the book of Acts, by the fifth chapter, By the fourth and fifth chapter, the pressure to shut that witness down is going to get seriously cranked up. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have used the same power that Jesus left them, and they have performed a healing miracle to give witness to the reality of Christ. A man crippled from birth, At their word, in the name of Jesus, stands up and jumps, literally jumps for joy into the temple. A massive mob comes. Peter says the only reason we can do this is because Jesus actually is the Messiah. Many more people are saved. There's such an uproar that the religious authorities come, break it up, investigate them. And in Acts chapter 4, the same religious machinery that that put the death of Jesus into motion tells Peter and John to shut up about it. They make a politically calculated decision saying the people are too enthusiastic. We can't touch them, at least not right now. People hate that. That will make things worse. And they make this decision. Let's intimidate them and tell them to shut up. Here's how that happened. Acts chapter 4, verse 18 and 20. So they called them. This is the Sanhedrin, the religious governing authorities in Jerusalem, speaking for the entire nation of Israel. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. There it is. Don't use His name. Don't interpret the Scriptures and say that He's the fulfillment of them. Don't keep telling people He's the Messiah that God has promised. Shut up. Peter and John answered them. Would you read their answer with me? They said, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. What an answer. Hey, well, you guys are in charge. You're the custodians of our faith. you got to make the call, whether it's right in God's sight, to do what God said or what you're telling us. But here's our dilemma. We can't stop speaking about what we have seen and heard what are they saying? We're witnesses and we can't be quiet about it. Something has happened in history that is so enormous, that is so significant, that is so life-changing that we can't be quiet about it. That is bold obedience to Jesus. They have waited in Jerusalem God, has promised, has sent the Holy Spirit. They miraculously had a visible, audible verification that Jesus has kept His promise because Jesus has told them, it's actually to your advantage if I leave so that the Holy Spirit will come. That way, He, the Spirit, can be in every believer and empower every believer from this point forward. They have received that Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit, which every believer has because Romans 8, 9 says, if one does not have the Spirit, he does not belong to Christ. It's not a question of whether you have the Spirit. The real question is whether you're going to give the Spirit control of you. Are you going to grieve the Holy Spirit? Are you going to yield to the Holy Spirit? Are you going to be controlled by fear or alcohol or sin, or selfishness, or yourself, or are you going to yield to Him? These disciples, these same difficult, backward, argumentative disciples, Peter, who's always the spokesperson, says here they gave a collective answer, but it's you know Peter, he's always leading first, right? That's why I identify so strongly with him. He often speaks and thinks along the way, in the middle of speaking. These disciples have been, if you've read the Gospels, they've been nitwits. According to the Gospel of Luke, they've actually argued with each other at the Last Supper, jockeying for position right after Jesus told them He's now going to die. Can you imagine the hard-heartedness of that? Jesus is leading them through the Passover and explaining that it will be a new covenant. And in the middle of announcing his death, they start having a sidebar conversation arguing about how that's going to work out to their individual advantage. They start arguing about the org chart. After he announced his death, nitwits, good news, that's all Jesus has to work with, beginning with me, including probably most of you. But now, these ordinary, broken, fearful, selfish people are transformed because they have not only received the Holy Spirit, they are yielding to the Holy Spirit, and they are saying, we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We can't stop giving witness, which leads to the second lesson. Our successful witness depends on the power of the Holy Spirit. So little mentioned. So often, either minimized or maximized in the teaching of the church, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, sent in Jesus' name upon Jesus' absence on earth, now not only opens the eyes of believers to convict us of sin and to show us the righteousness of Jesus, He also gives us new life and is available on a moment-by-moment basis to empower us to obey everything Jesus told us. Here's a simple idea. If Jesus told you to do it, you can. That seems so obvious that it's kind of embarrassing for a pastor to say it but I want you to hear it again. If Jesus told you to do something, you can do it. Only fools and ignorant people give instructions that cannot possibly be obeyed. As a dad, I already told you, self-confessed nitwit, I sometimes instructed my children to do things that were actually impossible. Why did I tell them to do that? Because I didn't know any better. I thought they could, and they couldn't. It was way beyond them. It was way harder than I thought. It would take much longer than I imagined. But that's because I don't know. Your Lord and Savior, your Master Jesus, He knows everything. So if He tells you to do something, you actually can do it. You just need the power of the Holy Spirit who is already in you. You need the control of the Holy Spirit to come upon you so that you can be witnesses wherever you are. And it's vitally important that you get this because, listen... Here's the plan. Even in a crowd this size, and I'm thrilled that you're all all here, but even in a relatively small group like this, there are literally hundreds and thousands of people represented in your circle of relationships and friendships and networks and jobs and volunteer opportunities you are perhaps the focal point for them to hear about Jesus. I'm not in those circles. They're not, it's not my job. It's not my family. It's not my circle of friends. Jesus has placed you strategically among them to open your mouth and tell them about Him. And you can do it because you have the Holy Spirit. And here's the favorite part of this teaching. It's going to get geeky for just a second. Third lesson. God will use all kinds of trouble to move us forward in witness. The book of Acts shows me, and I'm going to show you now, that what God did to spread the gospel all the way to the ends of the earth as Jesus had commanded was trouble. What kind of trouble? Racial conflict within the church. That was the first trouble. The early church in Jerusalem, which exploded in exponential growth on Pentecost Sunday when Peter preached the gospel after the Holy Spirit came, the church grew and prospered and the church became inhabited by people, by Jewish people people who had fully a Hebrew worldview, and Jewish people who were Jews ethnically but had a Greek culture and mindset, they felt neglected, they felt pushed aside, they felt like they were being literally starved out as the church became poor. They thought, oh, we're being racially discriminated against, it nearly split the church. But the apostle said, appoint your, from your own number a few people we will call deacons, we will call servants. We're going to keep preaching the Word and we're going, to keep, we're going to keep praying and these members of the church will go into these homes and take care of these grievances and provide for these needs. And the church was unified again. Then Saul, who was the most ultra-Orthodox and the most zealous religious Jew in his day, started persecuting the church because he thought the message of Jesus was an abject lie and a blasphemy against God. So he literally got authority to chase Christians down outside of the national borders of Israel. And he was willingly helping and participating in their imprisonment and their death. The first to die was one of those deacons named Stephen. And Paul saw at that time held the outer garments of the men who murdered Stephen, and Saul looked on with approval as they killed him. But then Saul met Jesus after the resurrection. He got knocked off quite literally, probably off a high horse. Blinded in the dirt on his knees, he said, What do you want me to do, Lord? And Jesus said, You're going to carry my name all the way to the end of the world. And in God's sovereignty, the most ultra-Orthodox of Jewish teachers became the greatest missionary to the pagans that the world has ever seen. All of that is in the book of Acts. And what moved the gospel forward every single time was trouble. Let me show you. Some of you are going to geek out with me. Flip your notes over and look at this chart. Oh, look at that chart, ladies and gentlemen. I have been saving this chart for 25 years, literally. This came to my attention in seminary, and I've never used it until today. Are you excited? Okay, only I am excited. But let me show you how simple this is. We're going to read it left to right. The book of Acts shows us how the Christians became top left witnesses empowered by the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? Now the gospel is going to spread. It started in the Jerusalem church among native Hebrew believers when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Scholars differ, and I don't have time to explain why it's A.D. 30, but a safe estimate of when that happened is A.D. 30. Thousands of people became Christians that very day. Within the church, there were Jews with Greek culture. They were known as Hellenists. They were Jews by birth, but they had been acculturated in the previous empire, in the Greek empire. There was racial conflict among them because they felt, one group felt neglected, so the church appointed seven deacons, including Stephen and Philip. Stephen was the first martyr. Philip started preaching in Samaria. That in itself was somewhat unthinkable. And the only reason that happened is, if you look at the very bottom of the chart, I'll show you in a moment, was persecution. Persecution drove the comfortable, prospering church out of Jerusalem. So they went to half-Jews, people with whom they had ancestral hatred. Samaritans were the product. They were their own ethnic group. They were the result of intermarriage between Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews hated them. But now Philip is preaching there. Philip is then taken miraculously to witness, next group over where it says proselytes, to an Ethiopian eunuch. He is the first African convert. The gospel reaches Africa because Philip was miraculously transported into the presence of an official from the Ethiopian government who was returning from Jerusalem. God's in charge and he's spreading his message quickly. Then Peter, who was nearly as observant and nearly as zealous as Paul was, except he was just a fisherman, not a professional religious teacher, Peter received a vision, as did Cornelius, a Roman soldier. They received visions simultaneously telling them that they have to get together. And against his own conscience, basically, Peter goes into the house of a Gentile, and not only a Gentile, but a Roman soldier, and gives him the witness. And the Holy Spirit arrives there, and God seals that moment miraculously, saying that, yes, even the Romans are going to be saved. And in Acts 13, a huge, pivotal moment in the history of the church, which we are still continuing today by setting some of our people aside as missionaries. The Holy Spirit speaks to the church at Antioch and says, set Paul of Barnabas aside, I have trips for them to make, and they go out to Gentile pagans with Greek and Roman culture. By the end of the book of Acts, Jews and Gentiles with both Hebrew and Greek culture are hearing Those are the ends of the earth with the final journeys of Paul. They're all hearing the gospel, but I want you to see something very important. Look now at the very bottom of the chart. There's a little box on the bottom left that says the motivation to cross the barrier. Do you see that? Every time the gospel moved where it had already arrived, every time it moved, it was because there was a problem. Here are the problems. The church was bursting in Jerusalem, but then there was a a racially-based fight, and the apostles needed to meet the needs of Greek-speaking Jews in the church. Then law-keeping, law-preaching Saul rose up to persecute the church, and after Stephen's martyrdom, the Jerusalem believers scattered. Everyone except the apostles ran. Philip ran for Samaria. He preached in Samaria and then he was sent out to the desert to witness to that African official. Peter was on a rooftop where he had a vision by the Holy Spirit while the Roman soldier who was to send for him is receiving a vision of his own saying that Peter can tell him the truth. In Acts 13, the Holy Spirit spoke to the whole church and said, set Paul and Barnabas aside for me and in Acts 15... This was so mind-bending and earth-shattering. It's hard for me in the time I have to explain to you what a mind-bending, paradigm-shifting idea it was for the Jews to understand that the Gentiles could be saved as well. There was absolutely nothing in their worldview that made them believe that people outside the nation of Israel could be included. So in Acts 15, they had a meeting of the most important and influential believers, the apostles in the Jerusalem church, to settle once and for all this vital theological question. Do Gentiles have to become Jews? Do they have to keep the law of Moses? Do they have to be circumcised in order to be saved? Do you know the answer to that question? No. The council said we couldn't keep the law. Let's not burden our Gentile brothers and sisters with it either. And they decide and they discover that Jesus Christ alone and faith in Him alone will save all. Choctaw Indians, Huicholes from the nation of Mexico, Persians, Arabs, Iranians, Europeans, Africans, people all across Asia from every tribe and tongue, from every way of living and from every worldview. Tribal people who we saw saved in Mexico who once worshipped rivers and rocks. And hard-bitten atheists from places like Los Angeles and New York who thought that Marx was right when he said that religion was the opium of the masses finally had their eyes opened by Jesus. And all of those people come into the family of God in the same way, simply by putting their faith in Christ through no righteousness and through no law-keeping of their own. All of this happened in a period of time, but I want you to see before we finish this sermon how long this took. The preaching in Pentecost was about 30. Look all the way over to the end of the year to the end of the chart. How long did it take the apostles who received the commission to actually get in gear and do what Jesus said? Do the math. 30 to about 49 or 50, right? It took them about. Twenty years to do what Jesus said why because God uses trouble to move the church forward in witness there's something in each of us when we find Christ that our best not our best but our most natural inclination is to say praise God I'm saved and settle in And stop pushing forward. Lesson number four. All of this, this chart teaches me. I took the time to show you this chart because it tells me that in all of biblical history, including in our day, it takes courage and it takes sacrifice and it takes generosity of spirit and generosity with money to spread the gospel. In every one of these instances, it was trouble in the church and trouble forced upon the church that made it step forward. The inclination of the Christian is to take Christ and to stay home. And Acts 13 and all of the epistles, because that's all the epistles are, the epistles from the book of Acts forward, most of your Bible from there forward is mostly the letters of Paul written to churches he started or churches he's trying to help. And if you read the epistles of Paul, you're going to see what it's like to have a missionary church. They're suing each other. There's rampant immorality. They're starting to believe Jewish myths. They're starting to worship angels. They're being drawn back into their pagan practices. They're a mess. How could it be otherwise? Jesus has reached now the end of the world, and people who have been taught to bow down in front of idols, to throw a pinch of incense at an altar, to worship all kinds of things, including eventually the emperor. They've now learned somehow that their sole allegiance belongs to Jesus. It's going to take some time for them to grow into this. And every single time, it takes courage to give that witness. It takes personal sacrifice to give that witness, and it takes generosity from those who were in one place to send the others to places they themselves will not go. Which brings me, really, to the application of the book of Acts to our day. Let me be really clear and practical, and then I'll be done. None of us have ever lived through anything like this pandemic. Other people have, many Christians have, frankly, but none of us alive now. We've never had to deal with anything like this. We live in a time where our nation is more divided, more angry, more fearful than any time certainly in my lifetime. A walk through my neighborhood will tell me how divided my own neighborhood is. People are literally posting their creed, usually a secular creed, in their front lawn. Some neighbors have actually posted the kinds of signs that says, if you're not with this cause or with that cause, don't come in here. This is, we're this kind of house. You know what I'm talking about? You seen this? Maybe I'll post a picture and you can see what I mean. Secular creeds are starting to pop up in front yards all across America. I'm not talking about political signs and candidates' names. I'm talking about statements of belief in front lawns. It's never been this divided. And what has been the inclination, thank God and to your credit, to the glory of God, because you've kept in step with Jesus, I haven't seen much of it here, but I talk to pastors across the country almost every week. What we're seeing is Christians hunkering down, waiting it out, waiting for the storm to pass, or in many cases involving themselves in fights that talk about everything except the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What should the church do? The church should step forward and simply do what Jesus told us to do. I'll end where I started. What did Jesus tell us to do? The Holy Spirit is going to come and you're going to be what? My witnesses. What if we took Him simply and seriously at His word? And with all the courage and all the sacrifice and all the financial generosity that was necessary in our own time, we reoriented our perspective on what this country's going through. Because I guarantee you this, there has never been a time where the people in your life who don't know Jesus are more frustrated with the answers they already have and more hopeless about lasting change. Every institution that we had grown to trust has either crumbled or been corrupted right in front of us. For the first time in our lives, I don't know if you've noticed, the vast majority of Americans can't even send their kids to school. I mean, there's nothing more fundamental in raising your kids than the time you send them to school. That has been something that people have depended upon all their lives. Now they can't. What if the best use of a situation like that was not to become a campaigner on either side of the issue, but to open your mouth and witness about Jesus? What if, for instance, you said, given the slightest opportunity by your friend, by your family, prompted by the Holy Spirit, you said something like, you know, I was in church on Sunday and my self-admitted nitwit of a pastor said something that helped me. Would you like to hear it? They may or they may not. See, all a witness does is tell what he's seen and heard. Most Christians are not doing that anymore. We're opening our mouth about all kinds of things, all kinds of opinions. Not about Jesus. What's the worst that's going to happen to you? They'll shut you down. Happened to me about two weeks ago. I saw an opportunity in a casual conversation I was having with someone I really, really care about. We're not family, but we're friends. And I saw what I considered a golden opportunity. I stepped in. He said, you know what? I'll stop you right there. I don't believe a word of it. I don't want to hear it. Okay. Okay. I tried to witness. I was not allowed. I got about two paragraphs of witness before I was told to shut up. We're friends. I'm respectful. I shut up. I'll wait for another opportunity. The main thing that keeps Christians currently from giving our witness is simple fear of that rejection. Guess what? They're not going to kill you. The worst they're going to do is think that you're ignorant or think that you're a zealot or think that you're a religious nutball. So what? You've told them about Jesus. If they cannot or will not listen, that's between them and the Lord. You're His witness. That's all you are. They won't kill you. I mean, I'm telling you, I got shut down as hard as I ever have a couple weeks ago. Do I look okay? My feelings were mildly hurt, but other than that, I lived through it. It was okay. What if we changed our entire attitude on this pandemic and we took Acts 1:8 to heart and we collectively told Jesus, Lord, we heard your last instructions. They'll be our first priority. We will start gulping in fear but then opening our mouths to talk about you. At the very least, you can give them a gospel tract to read. At the very least, you can mention something you read from your Bible or you heard in your church, and you can give witness to Jesus as someone once gave to you. If more Christians would do that, we would be in step with Jesus, we would have the power of the Holy Spirit, and there's literally no telling what God would do with frightened fearful, scattered, suffering people like us, he might begin to do what he once did in the book of Acts. Let's pray. Father, our day is filled with loss and fear, but also with great opportunity. So, we ask that you would make us witnesses to your Son, Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to stop praying and ask the most important question of all, both to those who are online and here in person. Are you quite sure that you yourself have been saved by Jesus? Would you bet your eternity on the fact that you are at peace with God, ready to be judged by God? You're ready to meet Him. You're at peace. You know that your eternity is taken care of. If you're not absolutely certain of that... I'm asking you as his witness to turn to Jesus right now. Tell him humbly that you give up on yourself and your religious ideas and your self-improvement. You're sorry for your sin. You're giving up on that. You're asking him to save you. And if you do that, would you please let me know? Would you send us a text to that number? If you're here in the parking lot, would you fill out a card? Would you tell me after the service? I'll be at that table right over there. I'd like nothing more. The best conversations I could have after this church service is that someone is not sure of their relationship with Christ. Father, may it be so. If there's someone within the sound of my voice, in person or online, who does not know you, does not know your Son as Savior, I pray that they would turn to Him right now, and then that they would go public that they would tell me, that they would tell someone, Lord, so that we could begin to walk and serve you together. We love you. We thank you. We ask you to make us your witnesses. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let me invite you into the same little adventure with God that I shared with the first service. These days of ours are filled with loss, fear, trouble but also tremendous opportunity. What you and I have to do is be witnesses. When I was in high school and God started dealing with me about being His witness, I didn't do it very, very often, but when I was... God basically showed me how negligent I was being in talking about Jesus. I just prayed to God and asked Him to give me a clear-cut opportunity to let me meet somebody or talk to somebody that I'd known for a long time. And just, and I, honestly, this is how I pray. God, you know how slow and ignorant I am. Just wave me over. Make it big and clear. And if you'll show me my spot, I promise I'll start talking about you. Not once in all the years that I've prayed that prayer has God taken more than a day or two to point out the person. So let me invite you to pray to God and to say, I'll be your witness. You told me to be your witness. I want to be your witness. Just make it clear to me. Give me a big red flag saying, she's the one. Here's where you start. Start telling people about me. And you do it and see what happens. Would you do that this week? Does that sound too daunting? It might be a little tough but you're a witness to Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit. And here's what the Bible says, you will receive what now? Power. You'll have a capacity, you'll have an ability, you'll have courage, you'll have strength, you'll have wisdom beyond your own that comes from the Holy Spirit to just open your mouth and talk about the greatest person of all. I love you. If there's anything at all we can do for you to serve you as a church family, please, please let me know. And if you're now having questions about Christ, I'd love to talk to you about that right over there. God bless you. Bye-bye.